0: So last week, um, whether you were here with us or not, we looked at the the letters to the seven churches, what Jesus said to uh, a particular seven churches. The church at Ephesus had lost what? Their first love. In Smyrna, we saw that suffering and persecution for the church was ramping up, not dying down. The church at Pergamum was being tempted by false teaching, and a false prophetess, Jezebel was her name, was infiltrating the church at Thyatira, which was actually leading some into sexual immorality and idolatry. The church at Sardis, though many talked well of its reputation, was actually what? Dead. The church in Philadelphia, again, was being persecuted and It was a lukewarm church, ready to be vomited out by God. That was the church where? In Laodicea. That's the state of the seven churches in which Jesus spoke to in our text last week. And the question that I would have for us this morning is this. If you were to evaluate yourself, honestly lay yourself bare before a holy God, what would he say that the status of your heart and life, is. Maybe you find yourself here with the gathered people this morning, and you just realize that you've lost some of the excitement that the gospel once brought you. Maybe you're having a hard time figuring out exactly how much money or how much time or how much of a reputation that you could give up for the cause of Christ. Perhaps you find yourself here this morning and you're indulging in sinful things and aren't really sure if you're ready to give those things up. Wherever you are this morning, we all need the very thing that Jesus promises to his churches. You see, it's not less suffering that we need or greater works to balance the scales. Giving more to the church, no, that would be great, is not going to make your dead heart alive. Indulging in sin with less frequency isn't going to make your Christian life better or work. You see, here's the deal. You and I need to see that all of creation is ruled and reigned by God on his throne. We also need to see that God is both creator and redeemer, and that all who know him worship him as such. I'll say that one more time. That's the overarching idea of the text today, that God is both creator and redeemer, and all who know him worship him as such. Here are two guiding principles for our time together this morning, and we've talked about some of these already. But one is that John's main focus, as we see here in Revelation 4 and 5, is not the how and when. A lot of us, when we approach the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature, are first looking at the how, and the when. But John's approach is not that we would look there first. We aren't first looking at the how and when, but rather the who and the why. And chapters four and five really center us in on that because it's here that we get a picture of what truly matters in this life. What is it that really, really matters when it all is boiled down to What really matters? We get a glimpse into ultimate reality here. And the second thing is, again, something we've talked about before, is that we're not looking necessarily for what happens next, but rather what does John see next? That's a guiding principle as we walk through the book of Revelation. And so here is what John sees next. I'm going to walk us through several scenes in chapters 4 and 5, and the first thing that John sees next is the throne, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You see, Jesus had just told the church at Laodicea that he stands where? At a... Door, and he's doing what there? He's knocking in verse 20 of chapter 3. And he says, If anyone would hear his voice and opens the door, he'll come into him and eat with him, and they with him. And now, all of a sudden, right here at the beginning of chapter 4, what does John see? He sees a door opened in the heavenly places. We also see that he hears the same voice that he heard back in chapter 1 like a trumpet, and we, we know that that is Jesus saying, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. John now is being caught up into the third heaven, which is the same thing that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The first heaven is the heaven in which the birds fly. The second heaven is that place that we call outer space. And that third heaven is the heavenly realm in which the Apostle Paul, and now we see the Apostle John, is being lifted into the very dwelling place of God. John writes in verse 2, if you're there in the text with me, at once I was in the Spirit. Now, If you were with us, we've already heard this once in chapter 1, verse 10. We'll see it a couple more times throughout the book of Revelation. But every time John says, I'm in the Spirit, or he finds himself in the Spirit, we're supposed to clue in that something new is taking place in his vision. So while John is in the Spirit, and I'll just pause there for one second, somebody asked that question last week, um, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? And they did that by going to southpoint.org ask. So as we're walking through the book of Revelation, if there's something that you would like some further explanation, we're going to try to do our best to kind of put those things before you. So again, you could go to southpoint.org ask. A-S-K, and ask that question. But here here John is once again in the spirit. That means that there is such a strong influence of the Holy Spirit in his life that he's taken over with it, which in the Old Testament is really what we see is being taken over people that leads to prophetic visions. So now John is up in the heavenly places in this vision, and what does he first see? does he first see? A throne. But this isn't just any throne. It's an occupied throne. Someone is there. We find out in verse 8 that the occupied person on this throne is the Lord God Almighty. He's seated on this throne. Now remember, we're getting a picture of what is ultimate reality here what's really happening in the most holy place, in the heavenly realm. Nancy Guthrie wrote this, in the heart of ultimate reality, we see, along with John, what is most important, what really matters. We see what the suffering Christians of John's day needed to see. We see what struggling believers of every age have needed to see that there is a God on the throne of the universe. Now, I would argue that if you're having a difficult time seeing why this is so incredibly beautiful, it's because you think that you're occupying that spot. Why am I having a difficult time seeing these chapters and the risen Christ as beautiful and glorious? It's because you would rather occupy the throne of sovereignty in your own life. You call the shots. You make the plans. You get the deals. Students, you get the grades. And in kindness, I would love to know how is that spot on the throne really working for you? If we were honest with ourselves, are we really that good at occupying the throne that is intended for the God of the universe? Verse three, the one who sat there, John said, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was this rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, what are we supposed to think when you see a rainbow? What comes to mind? God's promise. God's promise that he is going to be absolutely faithful to his people for all time. We think back to Noah's Ark when he first made that covenant with his people. We're supposed to think that God has mercy on this little family in the midst of a global judgment. We're supposed to think that God is always loving and caring and steadfast towards his own. And this is the picture of his throne at all times. Now think for a moment. I don't know about you, but still to this day, as I see a rainbow, and I could be driving and I'm like, stop the car. Do you see the rainbow? Anybody else? There's a rainbow. We get the science behind it, right? Right? It's not that crazy, and yet there is something in us that says, look at this beautiful sight that there is this promise from a universal God, creator of the heavens and the earth, that says, I am going to be faithful to my covenant people. And get this, this rainbow is not something that just comes at the end of a storm in the heavenly realm. This rainbow is is encircling the throne of the heavenly god how often all the time god is always showing mercy to his covenant people he's always steadfast in his love there's a lot of what will happen in the future In this book, but what we see in chapters four and five, specifically chapter four, is what is going on with God right now. You want to know what ultimate reality is? Ultimate reality is that there is a God in the heavenly places on a throne, and it is beautiful and it is encircled by a rainbow, testifying to God's very character. So John gives us this picture of the most important throne in all of the cosmos, and then we're on to see what he sees next, which for John, in this vision, he begins to zoom out from the throne in the heavenly throne room, and he sees elders. Verses 4 through the beginning of verse 6, and as we zoom out, there are 24 thrones there in the text, each being sat on by an elder, The elders, verse four, are clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, Many scholars believe these elders to be among the redeemed, like you and I, all of those who trusted in Christ Jesus by faith. They're among the redeemed, having been given these pure garments and crowns as a reward for their conquering, like we saw in chapter two and three. Some other scholars believe them to be angelic beings, especially because in the next chapter, we don't see them identifying among the redeemed in the new song. But most agree, this is the beauty of Revelation, and I want to be honest with you, most agree that the 24 number is significant, 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israelites in the Old Testament, 12 representing the apostles in the New Testament, all giving us this picture of God's act in redemptive history. But here's the deal. Whoever the 24 elders are, one thing is sure. Their presence is to signify that everything revolves around the throne of God. If you and I could just but get that this morning, that would be enough. That everything in this life, whether you realize it or not, whether your life is surrendered to God or not, everything revolves around the throne. All things are subject to the one who's ruling and reigning from the throne. I want you to do this in the most positive sense. Think about I-285. I-285, in the most positive sense, okay, I-285 was constructed because of all of the activity within the city's center. That is why I-285 was constructed. If there were no central activity in the city of Atlanta, everything was not happening in that place, there would be no I-285. In the same way, we get a A view, a zoomed out view of the throne of God, and there are 24 elders surrounding the throne of God, not because we are to gaze at them and inspect them, but rather they are to enhance the glory that is in the middle, that's why the 24 elders exist, so that we would focus in on the activity that is happening at its center. Now, if you know a bit about the Old Testament, you could think back with me towards the, the Old Testament tabernacle. The outer courts of the tabernacle were crafted with care, but those courts were not an end of themselves. Each Court was pointing further in, finally, to that most holy place where the presence of the Most High God dwelt. Everything was pointing into the center. When we get this picture in verse 5 of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, We're we're hearkened back again to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19, where what is happening with Moses? He's receiving commandments from the living God, and we, we see these same things. We hear these same sounds. Now, I want you to take all this in for a moment. There are all these thrones encircling the throne of God where God, the Lord God Almighty, is encircled by a rainbow and all of these beautiful colors. And I wonder if that is the same kind of heaven that you and I most most often are familiar with. Is that the heaven that we talk about? The heaven that I hear most often discussed is a heaven, hear this, Most often focused on man. The houses that will get in heaven. The tears that we won't cry in heaven. The family members that we'll be united with. And listen, Jesus has testified to it in his own scriptures that he's certainly gone to prepare a place for us. And that there will be no tears. In heaven, there will be no more suffering in the new Jerusalem. And we will be together, listen, with all of God's people for all of eternity. But John's vision gives us this picture that the focus of heaven and subsequently all of creation is on who? God. All of the activity. Every bit of heaven is focused on the almighty God. Heaven isn't, first, the best of everything that you could imagine in this life. All of its riches and luxuries, the travel and the grandeur, it's where the presence of God lives and resides and fills. That's heaven. And before this throne, verse 6, there is this sea of glass, as it were. John writes in his vision, like crystal that reflects all of that beautiful glory back to him. Everything is positioned so that the center would be extolled. Who is at the center of the universe and beyond? It is the Almighty God. And John's revelation is showing us that the Almighty God is inviting all of His creation into the center. This really is a reorientation, then, for us. We we so often want to invite God into our circumstances. God, would you change this about my life? Would you do this in their life? Would you make this better for me? Would you get me this job so that I, our hopes, our dreams... Chapter 4 and 5 reorients us to see that everything is about the center that is almighty God. We need a realignment towards what is ultimate reality, don't we, church? The next scene are the creatures. Let's look at the second half of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind I don't, I don't know what you're thinking right now, but this is a lot about stuff, about a God that we can't see, isn't it? And John just keeps talking about him and what's around him and what's pointing to him. Notice he doesn't go back and forth between talking about God and his creation, God and his creation, which is what we most like to think about. Who is God and what about us? Who is God and what about us? where are we going on our next trip and how might God help me get there? What kind of sports are our kids going to play and we should pray that God's will aligns with ours? What are we going to do with our tax money and how how should we share it with God? Or how are we going to pay our tax bill, right? If you weren't so fortunate to get a return. There's this enemy, you see, who is trying so incredibly hard to keep our minds off of the center, just a hair from the glory that is supposed to overwhelm us. I wonder, has he been successful in your life? If he could just convince us that we aren't supposed to see just a little off of the center, we'll be doing okay. Okay. Things won't be going amazing in our Christian life. We won't love God with our whole hearts, but we'll love him enough. We'll at least love him enough so that other people in the church think that we're doing okay in our Christian life. If the devil, the enemy that is after us could convince us that God's glory is not quite good enough for us. That's why this might be one of the stranger sermons that you've heard. It's completely focused on the center that is the glory of God. It's literally all about God. I don't want us to miss that in the book of Revelation. These four living creatures, either cherubim or like the seraphim Isaiah sees in chapter six in his own vision in the throne room. They're full of eyes, the text says, in front and behind. One has strength like a lion. Another is able to work like an ox. One has the intellect of a human and still another with the swiftness of an eagle in flight. But again, what's the point of these creatures? They are pointing us to his throne. You say, Chris, you are beating this like a dead horse. And I would just say, the vision that God has given to John is telling us that everything is pointing to the throne of God. Can we get it enough? And as they do, we see in verse 8 that these creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Some 700 years before John pins this vision, Isaiah has a similar one in chapter 6. And he, too, gets a vision of the heavenly places, and there are creatures there surrounding the Almighty God saying, what? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, they never cease to say this before Almighty God. It's these words that are constant in the heavenly places. If we could but see the glory that is really due to the Almighty God in this moment, we would not stop saying the very same thing. We live as a people, like Isaiah said, with unclean lips who dwell among the people of unclean lips. And in our day and time, maybe it's you, we say the the name of the Lord carelessly. It's used in broken vows. It's used in broken oaths. It's used at the courts of the highest in our land. Yet in the heavenly places, in the throne room of the almighty God, his name is only hallowed. Heard that word before, haven't you? Jesus gives his disciples a picture of what it's like to pray to his heavenly Father. In the heavenly places, God's name is treated as it should be in the here and now, it is only hallowed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His name is only glorified in the heavenly places, and this is done without interruption and end. His name never ceased ceases to be praised of and spoken of. Verse nine, whenever the living creatures give praise, the 24 elders fall down. Verse 10, before the one who is seated on the throne and worship him, the elders then cast their crowns before the throne and say in verse 11, if you're there in the text with me, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I'm a preacher. I enjoy doing this. I enjoy teaching and proclaiming the scriptures. But I'll just let you in for a moment. I'm learning to love the same God that I'm proclaiming to you to love. I'm learning to love, I'm learning to know what it is like to walk as a disciple of Christ Jesus along with you. And so as I'm studying the text this week, I'm wondering what does it look like to be a part of ultimate reality in the here and now? What does it look like? And so as I laid my head down on the pillow before I would be asleep in just a few moments, I'm sorry if that's not you just a matter of moments, saw a shaking of head, just a matter of moments, I started thinking, as I go to sleep, as all of my consciousness moves into subconsciousness, as I'm no longer in control of the thoughts that my body has, the, the things that my body does for the next several hours, all of a sudden, I started thinking, this is what's happening in the here and now. But in ultimate reality, the praise of the Lord God Almighty never ceases, never stops. Even youths grow faint and weary, but the Lord God never tires. The heavenly realm is always speaking to him that which is due to his name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we see the scroll in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John now sees a scroll in the right hand of the Almighty God. And we get from it having been filled on the front and back that this is a comprehensive plan. It's a good plan. It's a Full plan, and it is also completely closed. William Hendrickson wrote This scroll symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and concerning all creatures in all ages and to all eternity. That's the scroll, and now we move into the search. Because there's an angel in verse 2 who proclaims loudly, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And there's this sobering moment in the heavenly places that no one can do it. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to either open the scroll or even to look into it. Now think about that for a moment. The human race, as gifted by God, can build bridges that span for miles. We can make computers that fit into our pocket that keeps us connected with billions of people. We can build rockets that take us to the next place in our galaxy. And we have even designed telescopes that help us to see beyond ours. And yet John weeps loudly in verse four because no one is able to open this scroll, not even look into it. Now at this point, we can imagine a wedding ceremony. Think of one if you've been to one or a part of one. The very beginning of the ceremony, the family is seated, the music is light. Then the wedding party begins their march in. The groom is standing awaiting his bride. The ring bearers come, the flower girls come. Every bit of it is to point to this one moment. And if you could think for just a second that as you're sitting here and the music continues, but nothing is happening in the back, everyone would be looking at those double doors saying, what is happening? It's a really sobering moment, particularly if the minutes were ticking for the groom. What is happening? What will happen next? If the scroll isn't opened, you see, God's purposes for the world then cannot be fully realized. There's something really bad about the scroll not being able to be opened. The suffering in this world will not stop ever. There will be no ultimate victory for the people of God. The doors never open. That would be a great travesty on the wedding day. But an elder stops him in verse five. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The sanctuary doors now burst open, and now all of the eyes in the heavenly realm are all focused on the lion. And John does what? He looks for this lion, and as he does so, in verse 6, we see in between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, John says, sees a what standing? A lamb. I thought you said it was a lion. Yes, but it is also a lamb, but not just any lamb. It's a lamb that appears slain. The lamb standing is the Christ who was slain the victory that God is bringing won't look like any kind of victory that the world applauds. You see, here is the risen Christ standing as though a lamb slain with eyes full of wisdom, horns showing all strength, and there is the Christ who endured death and came back to life. And the Christ, who is the only one worthy, goes and takes the scroll out of God's right hand in verse 7, and as he does this, the four living creatures and 24 elders fall down before the lamb, each of them holding a harp, the text says, and golden bowls full of incense, which we are told of the prayers of the saints. And then we move into the final scene, which is a celebration. And together, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a song that has never been uttered in the heavenly places, a new song for the first time in ultimate reality. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then John looks around in verse 11 and he hears around the throne and the living creatures and the 24 elders the voice of thousands upon thousands of angels with a loud voice saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature, the text says, everywhere joins in. The spotted cows, the fire ants, the blue whales, the great horned owls, The peregrine falcons, every creature in the universe joins in this beautiful song. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I gave you some of those animals because those are my son's favorite animals. And he didn't make any of them. He didn't have anything to do with naming them. He didn't have anything to do with forming those creatures. And in the heavenly places, we're being told that creator God, who made all things, has all of his creation echoing back to him the praise that is actually due his name. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can you imagine that sound? Consider the the greatest worship many of us have ever heard. 92,746 people are crammed into a stadium not too far from here. In the fall, every year, to give praise to a team that in no real way has ever done a single thing for you. And yet all honor and glory and praise are given to them every time they score a touchdown. And if you've been to a game like that, in all seriousness, isn't that a beautiful sound? It's a beautiful sound, whether you're for that team or not. It is a beautiful chorus Of people who are excited to give their praise and adoration to a team who has done nothing for them in any real way. Now, what about an entire cosmos? giving rightful honor and praise and adoration to the one who has literally given his own life so that we might have life eternally in his name, so that sinful people like you and me could be brought near to the center. Can you imagine that sound? What will that be like, and the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Please hear this with great love. As these beings realize what has been accomplished, they don't begin singing with half-hearted voices or take a sip of a beverage that has been so kindly brewed for us. They fall down in worship and praise the living God who's at the center of all things. Brothers and sisters, I don't do it yet. I can't see it yet either. But I am confident that one day when we see things as they really are, we will never be tempted to approach worship of the living God casually ever. You've seen the response of the heavenly beings. You know how the creatures in all of the universe respond to the glory of God. So now I want you, you, to think about your own response. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we're told about the good news of Jesus and that it is something for his people in which angels long to look into. Angels are not like redeemed creatures like you and I. Jesus Christ did not go to a sinner's cross for his angels. He went to a sinner's cross to pay the sins for you and I, all those who would trust in Christ Jesus by faith. We who deserve to die as a result of our sin against this glorious God, who has creatures that are praising his name at all times, without ceasing, a rainbow that is beaming around his throne, testifying to his mercy and covenant faithfulness, a sea that is before him that is always reflecting his glory, elders that are falling before him, we sinned against that God who's on the throne at the center of all things and is ruling and reigning all that we see. And in his great love, that God's great love, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die a death that you and I as sinners deserved to die. And he invites us by faith into a relationship with him through his Holy Spirit that we too might reign in the center with God. If the unredeemed of the heavenly places live, to ever give praise to this God, how might we respond in light of our own redemption? What about you? What about us? For the Christian, my prayer is that we would ask God to cultivate in us a worship of him that we would carry into our workplaces, into our homes, into our relationships that helps us see how the almighty God has invited us into his glory. God is both creator and redeemer and all who know him worship him as such. In just a moment, I'm going to invite those of you who have trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sin by faith to respond to that glorious Christ in communion. Christ Jesus Did not go to the cross so that you and I would be enthralled by ourselves, but so that we would be saved from ourselves. We'll recognize together in just a moment, there are six stations in this room. I'm going to invite you to head out on your left and return on the right and take the bread which is representative of Christ's body that was broken for us, dip it into the juice, which we remember his blood being poured out for us and we'll take those elements back to our seats and partake together. But this morning, I want us to worship Christ as we've seen revealed in this text this morning. Remember the price that Jesus paid to redeem you from your sin, Christian And as you wait in line, worship. Worship. You've been designed, we've been designed to point in all the things that we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, to point to the center. And for the non-Christian, this life, as hard as you try, won't work. If you're on the throne, it won't work. As hard as you've tried, you recognize that it just won't work. Whether you believe the Bible is true, that our text this morning is true or not, you know that already. Surrender your life to Christ today. Give him the glory and honor that is due his name. And if that's you, I'd ask that you wouldn't partake in communion today but as we sing after communion, come, I'll be on the front row singing praise. Would you come and find me? Say, Pastor, I wanna know more about Jesus. That's you. Come today. Let us worship God as he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us a chance to marvel at your beauty and your grace. We thank you that you are in the heavenly places now, encircled by a beautiful rainbow testifying to your mercy and faithfulness. That there are 24 elders that are encircling your throne that there are living creatures always giving praise that is due your name holy 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 are you lord god almighty and i pray that we as your people would live lives empowered by your spirit surrender to your way surrender to your rule and reign now god as you are praised in the heavenly places we pray that our lives might be a testament of that praise you've created us to worship you've created us so that everything in us might point back to the center that is you help us in our work this week help us in our relationships this week help us in our homes this week to point to you as we lie down our heads on our pillows Would we remember that praise is always being given to your name, whether we are awake or not? God, I pray for the individuals here this morning that have never trusted in Christ Jesus by faith. I pray that you might, by your Spirit, make that day today. Give them a new heart, Father, by your Spirit. Take them off of the throne that they think that they occupy and give them a vision for your glory and grandeur that you're seated high above everything. It is your name that is to be praised. And we'll give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We recognize that if it's not now, it will be one day. We love you. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray, amen.